we're in a series in the book of Revelation, and uh, we're coming to a good stopping point. And I was a little concerned initially that my, I, I wasn't going to be able to get in this seventh message to the churches before we took a break for Advent. But then I realized the first week of Advent is hope. And guess what? What a perfect theme to tie in with this. And so we're going to be able to pull that together. Um, you'd think we were smart and planned things like this, but we're not and we didn't. It just <laughs> worked itself out. And uh, so we're grateful uh, for that. But if you would open your Bibles to the third chapter uh, in the book of Revelation, and um, <clears throat> we will be in um, uh, the, the uh, 14th through the 22nd verses. Um, let's see. And uh, I'm going to read from the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, uh, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would let us hear, as we are commanded to hear, what the Spirit says to the churches. We need this message which you have for us. So open our hearts, our minds to understand, our ears to hear, and our eyes to see. Give us that salve that we so desperately need. In Jesus' name. Amen. My subtitle for this message is The Pretense of Misplaced Hope. The Pretense of Misplaced Hope. We talk a lot about hope. That's our theme today in Advent. What is hope? You might ask that a variety of ways. For what do we hope? What is it to hope? And in what do we place our hope? We use hope in those three ways. Our hope, a noun, if you will, is the thing that we long for. That is our hope. I long for that thing. We, we refer to that as our hope. Uh, that We also say uh, that to hope for something, we speak of hoping for things, which is to long for that thing. And, of course, we say that our hope, our, we use our hope in the sense that it is what or whom we trust in to bring about that for which we long, as when we say God is our hope. Okay, we are 
hoping, and He is the one we trust in to bring about that hope. So He is our hope. So for what do we hope? Well, a Christian's hope is for the kingdom of God to come fully and quickly. That is the thing we long for as believers. What is it to hope? Well, it's to yearn for or to long for that kingdom. Your kingdom come. Romans 8, 22 and through about 24, we read this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, we long for everything to be set right. We live in a world where things aren't set right. I'm pretty sure that's your experience. Certainly my experience. Things are not set right. We long and eagerly wait for things to be set right. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? So hope is this longing for things to be set right. And our hope is that those things are set right. And in what or whom do we place our hope? In Christ. Which means that we trust in Him to bring a uh, true and lasting shalom or peace, prosperity, wholeness. True and lasting we sing it this way, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Faith and hope are closely related. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You see, faith acts in line with our longing for the kingdom because such actions bring the kingdom to bear in the lives of those around us. Because I have faith in what I hope for, that His kingdom has come and is coming, that I live in light of that kingdom, and that very living that way transforms the world in such a way that it can taste the coming kingdom of God. A train to Moscow tells the story of a young girl growing up in post-World War II Soviet Union. For Sasha, the main character whom we follow from childhood into adulthood, it's a story about hope and faith. Hope and faith in one radio message or another. One day, the daily ritual on the little brown box with a fabric front perched on the shelf beside the wood-burning stove, the radio... Looked a little different back then than you might imagine today. But that radio began again. Stalin, our military glory. The voice sings above her head. And when the song praising Stalin ends with the big bang of cymbals, they hear the news from the fields with rumbling tractors. Sasha always wonders about the destination of those tractors filled with wheat. Maybe they're all sent to Moscow or Leningrad. Because they never see any food in their stores or in their homes. But, of course, those are much more important cities than her town of Ivanovo, a little provincial town. She's afraid to ask about that, though, because Grandpa is always within earshot and wouldn't appreciate her questioning the news. News of the huge harvest reminded the people of the success of the Soviet Union, but never delivered food. 
That day, when the song praising Stalin ended with the bang of cymbals, the voice from the radio announces, Tonight we perform Chekhov's Three Sisters. She doesn't know about Chekhov yet because she's just finished the first grade, but this radio play doesn't sound like anything she's ever heard. It speaks of another world, or better, another time, where in the same place, things were much different. In that moment of imagination, she's able to escape momentarily into that world. Not the paralysis of escapism, but the gift of escape through imagining and then feeling and seeing another reality. Right then, just finishing the first grade, Sasha determined that she would go to Moscow and become an actress. Sasha sets her hopes on a life in the theater, a place where she can escape the, the lie that everyone else seems to be following by entering into the life of the imagination. At almost 17, then, she leaves home and her poor provincial town for Moscow to enter the theater school. While her childhood first love, Andre, coming from even deeper poverty, becomes a Communist Party member working as an informant. And guess what his job is? Keep an eye on the theater. <laughs> Describing what she had learned through this experience, it says, quote, Maybe she didn't spend three years in Moscow for nothing after all, learning the art of real make-believe, as opposed to the phony pretense of their history books and their heroic valor and pretend radio broadcasts Grandpa probably still listens to every morning. See, she's learning real make-believe, as opposed to the fake make-believe that everybody else is living, where they act as if everything's okay when it's not. Maybe she's actually learned something. She's learned to act by pretending to be someone else. And this pretending, paradoxically, has become more truth-telling than their real life. Back home, her family still believed the state's promises of a better tomorrow and refused to look out the window and see that there's no bright dawn on the horizon during a visit with her mother, with whom Sasha has a stressed relationship, needless to say, uh, in frustration, her mother asked, What do you want? What do you want? And Sasha's response, I want you to stop waving flags for a minute and look around. I want you to stop pretending that everything is fine. Stop making excuses for the mess we're in. We live in a country full of hypocrites and bandits and of people like Grandpa and you, true believers who have survived Stalin only because he was too busy murdering the other 20 million. Got to the point. The church in Laodicea, as a whole, has been living a pretense. A pretense that they were rich. Rich because they had money. Rich because they had wealth. Rich because all their earthly needs were met. Yet Jesus is calling them to a life of faith. A life of, if you will, bear with me, a life of acting. To be sure, a life wherein the Smyrnian believers who were poor were actually rich, while the Laodicean church, which was wealthy by worldly measure, was actually poor. Jesus wants them to stop waving their flags for a minute and look around, to stop pretending that everything is fine, to borrow from our book, so that they might engage in good works that set out to make a real difference. 
Jesus wants them to act in line with our longing for the kingdom because such actions bring the kingdom to bear in the lives of those around. So we're going to explore this text under the same five headings that we've used for the five prophetic messages, Christ's credentials, Christ's commendation, Christ's critique, Christ's corrective, and Christ's consequences. And so we begin with Christ's credentials. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. There's one place in the New Testament where Amen is used as a title. Right here. Christ is the Amen. There's also one place in the Old Testament where Amen is used as a title. Isaiah 65, verse 16. Where in the Hebrew Bible, God is twice referred to as the God of truth, literally the God of Amen. The God of Amen. And he's twice in one verse referred to, so it's one place, twice, done, there. And, and so Amen, see, Amen is normally a statement of belief. When we preacher says something really good, the audience says, amen. Yeah, we can practice that a little more, you know. Because <laughs> I know it's not the lack of saying something good. Surely it couldn't be that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we know better, right? So, no. Um, but, so, so amen is a statement of belief, a declaration that something is true. To be the God of amen is to be the true and faithful. He is both true and he is true to what he promises. The God, that, that God is the amen, the true and faithful in Isaiah 65, and Christ is declared the amen, then describing it with the two Greek words into which it would be Translated, the faithful and true witness makes an assumption then that Christ is God. The same title attributed to both, a title for God. Christ is the truth, the true ruler of God's creation, the only ruler faithful to bring about a kingdom of shalom. And that's the the last title he's given, the ruler of God's creation. Now that title comes from chapter 1 and Revelation, though more from the introduction than from the vision of, of, that begins in verse 9. The hearers of this message are blessed with grace and peace, we are told, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The rulers of Rome claim to be rulers over all creation. You may remember the image, and I think we've got it to put up here, of, of the coin where this, this son of Domitian is pictured as a god. That's why he's naked. Gods were pictured naked. And he's on top of the world. Note the, the world under him. He's on top of it. And the stars, the seven stars are in his hands. He's juggling them, juggling them it almost seems. But, but why? Because he's in control, they believed, of everything in heaven and on earth. But of course he was not. Jesus Christ is the one who holds the seven stars. He's the one with authority over all these things. He's the ruler of God's creation. He's not only ruler over the creation that we see, but as we noted in chapter 1, it says that he's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. But as the firstborn from the dead, he's the ruler of the new creation. We tend to think of the new creation as something that will begin one day or that will happen one day. But in the New Testament, the new creation began with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so it already exists. 
It's coming down out of heaven from God. And it exists wherever Jesus reigns as the one who reigns at God's right hand is lived out. Hence, when we bow to Christ, we are new creations, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, and are called to live in that creation as we do His will on earth as it is in heaven. Is that acting of a sort? I would suggest it is. It is, quote, to borrow again from that novel, the art of real make-believe as opposed to the phony pretense of their history books and their heroic valor and pretend radio broadcasts. To borrow from what Sasha discovered, it's that kind of acting that paradoxically becomes more truth-telling than their real life. In other words, when we act in line with the kingdom of God and the reign of Christ, it may not seem like it's real, but we're acting out that real make-believe that transforms everything around us and in us. That leads to our second heading, Christ's commendation. He begins in verse 15, I know your deeds. And as with five of the messages, after I know your deeds comes a commendation. But like the church in Sardis, what follows for the Laodiceans is not a commendation. But he goes straight into the critique. So he has nothing good to say about the church in Laodicea. In fact, even less, because at least in Sardis he followed up with, oh, I know there are a few. (laughs) Here he never says that. He has nothing good to add to that. So he goes straight into critique. So that leads to our third heading, Christ's critique. Verses 15 through 17. Christ says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I missed a key point when I was studying this for about the first hour or so as I was was studying the text. Kept looking at it. It, we've, We've been trained well how we're supposed to read this. And when we hear hot, cold, and lukewarm, we we think that's referring to their spiritual state. You know, they're Neither hot nor cold, they're lukewarm in their spiritual state. Accordingly, Jesus is saying that he would rather that we were white hot for Jesus or ice cold, completely uninterested in Jesus, rather than moderately interested in Jesus, lukewarm. And although that really doesn't make a lick of sense, we just keep reading. I mean, really? Do you think Jesus would rather you hated him than you were moderately interested? I don't think so, but that's how we read it, typically. Now, there are two things I had missed. First, that it is not their emotional state or even their spiritual state that is being described. It is not their zeal nor their lack thereof that is being described by hot, cold, and lukewarm. It is their works. I know your deeds that you are neither cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. It's their deeds that are the problem. And that was just too easy to miss, I guess, because I've been told how I'm supposed to read these verses for so long. Now, how would the residents of Asia Minor in the late first century A.D. understand those metaphors of hot, cold, and lukewarm? Well, Laodicea was part of a tri-city area. We might call them tri-towns, given their size relative to what we call cities today. But they were big towns, uh, 
for sure. And, and <clears throat> in, they were, if, if they looked one direction, six miles, they could actually see on a clear day Hierapolis. And in the other direction, ten miles was Colossae. You, know, you may remember in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says, have this read to the believers in Laodicea. They're mentioned there. So they, they, they would share letters that would come to them. They were one kind of community uh, church, because you know, there are small churches in these towns, so they would collectively uh, uh, share resources and things of that nature. Now, Colossae had ice-cold springs considered beneficial for one's health, and you know, they had healing qualities. And even people today will talk about the benefits of getting in ice cold waters. Now, I'm not volunteering, I'm just saying people talk about that. I think they're crazy, but it's in fact true that people indeed do that. And, and so uh, they were considered beneficial. And Hierapolis, on the other hand, had hot springs, but those are also considered beneficial, useful for their healing properties. Okay? Now, Laodicea, on the other hand, had only two small rivers which were wholly inadequate to provide for the growing populace of that city. It had great wealth, so it was a growing city. It was, was a happening place. Uh, so they built an aqueduct that was from a spring, a hot spring, five miles away. And by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was not hot, but... That's right, you're paying attention. That's good. It was lukewarm. And, of course, it's been going through this aqueduct, and, and, of course, over time, there's holes in it, and there's broken parts. And So what else might it be? Kind of dirty, right? Polluted with whatever's come through. And, and so you take a drink. If you're expecting cold, what are you, you going to do? You're going to immediately, <laughs> I don't want that in my mouth, right? I don't, I don't want that. I might be able to use it for other things. I might be able to cook with it, but I'm not, it's not coming in here for, for drinking purposes. And so you spew it from your mouth. Um, so here's the point that they would have understood. To be hot would be to, works that were hot would be works that had healing properties, that, that had beneficial effects in the world around. Works that were cold would be works that were, had healing properties that were beneficial to the world around. Lukewarm was useless works. They were utterly useless. They had no benefit in any real sense to people. That's the issue that's going on in Laodicea. Well, I don't know everything about the nature, and we certainly can't know uh, the nature of their works. We are told that their works were not useful, but useless. They were not beneficial, but they, they were, as it were, neutral. Neither hot nor cold. Lukewarm. You've heard... Activity doesn't necessarily equal accomplishment. At least if you're in the business world, you've heard that. Neither does activity equal benefit. Churches today are as much in danger of engaging in works or activities that lack the healing benefit of the kingdom of Christ. If so, there's also the danger of being spewed out of Christ's mouth, no matter how successful they appear. The picture seems to be like someone taking a big drink only to realize as it enters their mouth that it needs to be ejected. It, it's the word they would use for vomit, but I, I think also just strongly spewing that, that water from their mouth. It's not just spit, to be sure. In other words, their witness was useless. 
to borrow from Jesus in other places, their salt had lost its saltiness. Their lamp had been hidden rather than put on a lampstand. Christ is calling us to let our light shine before others that they may see our good, our beneficial deeds, and glorify our Father in heaven. The deeds of the Laodiceans did not have that effect. And then he begins, You say, I am rich. I have attained wealth. I do not need a thing. You say, This self-perception of the Laodiceans is quite the opposite of what the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, says about them. They say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. Christ says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They arrive before Christ self-confident, expecting great commendation, and instead they get nothing but critique. There are two places in Revelation in which someone is quoted in this way. It's called imputed speech. Speeches imputed to them are put in their mouth. You follow me? And then it's immediately reversed by a prophetic statement from Christ or, you know, whatever the prophecy from an angel or what happens to be. So, so you say, I am rich, I do not need a thing. Well, the other place that it's done, so this is one of them. The other is Revelation 18, verse 7. Therefore, there, Babylon is is personified. In her heart, she boasts. I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. And then immediately, that's reversed with three woes that denounce that she is mourning and she is going to be taken down. Okay. So it's a reversal, a prophetic reversal. This technique was common in Jewish and early Christian writings. Paul and James both use it in their epistles. It's not an uncommon technique. And and when they do that, it's not as if they're literally quoting them. In other words, it may not be that the Laodiceans actually said, quote, I am rich, I have attained wealth, I do not need a thing. But that is what... They think. That's their persona. That's how they really are deep inside, whether they say it or don't. The fact that in Revelation it is only wealthy Laodicea and wealthy Babylon that are spoken of in this way implies a connection between them. The Laodicean church has compromised its allegiance to Christ. It is likely that their sins are the same kinds as those of some of the other four churches which are critiqued for their idolatries. Christ says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those five words describe their true condition. Wretched and pitiful, or pitiable maybe, are both used literally. Poor, blind, and naked are used metaphorically. They are, were likely chosen because Laodicea was known for its wealth, its medicinal eye salve, and its clothing industry. They were poor, blind, and naked. So we're going to explore these under the corrective, and that leads to our uh, fourth point, Christ's corrective. And if you would, read with me verses 18 and 19 again. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. I counsel you. I mean, that that could not be more understated. 
That, that, it just couldn't be more understated. One might expect, if you know what's good for you, you'll buy from me. But no, it's, I, I counsel you. And it's a very soft word in the original as well. It's not just that's hidden by the translation. It's, it's an understated uh, position. I don't know if that should comfort us because of his gentleness or concern us because when we are in need of a wake-up call, we might miss the urgency. I mean, what, what, would, what would they think hearing this? Oh, he's counseling us. You know, we get counsel from lots of people. Maybe we'll take that counsel, maybe we won't. They need to take it. They think they don't need a thing, but he advises them to expend their wealth for three things. That's what it means to buy things. You're going to trade your wealth for it, right? So buy it. Well, what? Gold refined in the fire. Well, this is clearly not literal, but represents true wealth. They had wealth, but not true and lasting wealth, which, of course, it doesn't come in earthly ways. Gold refined in the fire. Secondly, they need to buy white clothes to wear. Laodicean wealth could not provide truly white garments. Even though they had the textile industry at its max there, they were really good at clothing, and they had all of that. They, they were naked. Adam and Eve had hid before God because of their shameful nakedness. But Christ offers true, a true shalom, a true richness of life, as it was meant to be. This is no pseudo-righteousness or some sort of legal fiction. These white clothes mean that their deeds can become useful. Healing for the nations, as it were. Not only will their shameful nakedness be covered, they will truly have white garments, deeds with healing benefits. Healing salve for your eyes. Prosperity has a way of making us think we see clearly that we've got it right, when it, all along it blinds us. Prosperity tends to blind us. Calvin wrote that nothing is more dangerous than to be blinded by prosperity. The Laodiceans were blinded. The, the most dangerous thing about being blind is that you can't see. It's like deception. The funny thing about deception is that it is so deceptive. Rarely do we know when we are being deceived. And rarely do we know what we do not see. The true wealth, true righteousness, and true vision that Jesus is offering them are only available from Christ. Christ emphatically says, it is from me. We must buy it from Christ. Now how do the Laodiceans, or for that matter any of us, buy this gold, these white clothes, and this ISAB? Well, we're not exactly told in the text, though buying implies that they're exchanging their wealth for it. Okay, so there's that implication. But how do they do it? How do they go about it? I would suggest there's a connection to those verses in the Gospel of Matthew, which we might be familiar with, in which, for instance, Jesus instructs us to lay up treasure in heaven through our generosity. It's an exchange. To truly do this, one must stop believing the lie that our money is our own, and that the one who hoards the most wins. We must stop believing the lie that money is our security. We must act the script that tells us God's kingdom is coming and that He provides for our daily bread and we have nothing to fear. 
as we provide for others. The Laodiceans thought they had what they needed. Christ invites them to exchange what they have for what they truly need. But then I want you to notice Christ's expressed love for them. I mean, what comes next is surprising. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus may have nothing good to offer them about themselves. He says nothing to commend them. It's too bad he hadn't read, you know, how to win friends and influence people because he would have known he had to say something good, but he had nothing good to say. And yet still, he says he loves them. And that it is only because of his love that he rebukes them. But they still must be earnest and repent. He patiently waits for them like his father. He is patient, not lax, but willing that all should come to repentance. And this gives them hope. You see, our hope is in the love of Christ. Whatever failures we've had, whatever mistakes we've made, at the end of the day, our hope is that Christ still loves us. You might say, but but Christ has nothing to commend in my life. Well, join the Laodiceans. And yet he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Oh, thanks be to God. Amen? Amen? Thanks be to God. That is what our hope is in. Ultimately, that leads to our fifth and final point, which is Christ's consequences. Beginning in verse 20, again, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on His throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The negative consequence isn't stated here like you see in the other messages to the churches, likely because it was stated in the critique. If you do not repent, He's going to spew them from His mouth, right? Uh, I'm about to spew you from my mouth. So the negatives implied are are stated at the front end, so it's not here where you would expect a negative consequence. But there are positive consequences listed. First, if if they repent, Christ tells them that he advises them to, to buy some things from him, and then he stands at the door and he knocks. He's encouraging them to open the door so that they might get these things from him. The Laodiceans, however, have put up a no soliciting sign. They're not interested because of their own self, in their own self-estimate, they do not need a thing. I was in sales for a number of years between, well, sometimes while I was pastoring in my first 10 years out in Utah, bivocational. Um, and then after that, I spent uh, 10 years full-time in, in sales, business-to-business sales. And, and um, I, I, I always enjoyed sales. It was an an interesting thing. Sometimes people say, well, you're in sales now. And I say, no, I'm not. I'm not in sales at all. I'm not selling anything. It's a really bad deal, by the way. But I am a repeater. I'm repeating some things that I've, I've seen in the text. But um, not a salesman. Um, but there's an interesting thing I found in, in my time in sales is, is that people would often tell me that they didn't need what I was selling before they even found out what it was. 
I mean, I would frequently tell them, well, I don't know whether you need it or not either because I don't know what your needs are. But since you don't know what I'm selling and I don't know what you need, we have no idea whether we need, you need it or I, you don't need it. So maybe we start with what, you, what, what your situation is. We talk about that. Um, but the Laodiceans have basically put out a sign saying, not interested. They've analyzed themselves in conversation with themselves and determined that they need not a thing. Speaking about prayer and prayerlessness, an Orthodox bishop said, quote, As soon as we place ourselves before God, opening ourselves to Him, without even looking for an answer, the transformation of our being begins. As long as we speak to ourselves, we become like a serpent trying to eat its own tail. The Laodiceans were like those serpents trying to, uh, to live off themselves. Christ invites them to open themselves up to Him. Not for answers or solutions, but for Him. What about us? Have we put up no soliciting signs for Jesus? Not interested. Have we said, don't stand at my door and knock. I'll let you know when and what I need from you. I mean, of course, nobody would consciously say that, but do we subconsciously say that in our actions and attitudes? He stands at the door and knocks. You might say, well, I'm a believer. Well, this whole church was believers, right? Weren't they all believers? They professed faith. But he was standing at the door and knocking. This wasn't the unbeliever. But he had, they hadn't let him in to sup with them. It's possible that means to be a believer and in a church. And to have closed Jesus off. To have put up no soliciting signs to Jesus. If they but open the door, Christ will dine with them. Oh Lord, help us to open the doors of our lives. And to buy what you are offering. To exchange what we trust in for you. The one who can be trusted. And then it says, to the one who is victorious. So you've got the promise of dining with them, supping with them. But then you've got this, to the one who is victorious. And, and in that, there's a promise and a parallel. The promise is that they will reign with Christ to sit with him on his throne. Now, Jesus is using a, a common picture of a double throne. And, and you'll see, we've got a picture we can put up right here. These are two different coins. This one on the left is from about 13 B.C., during Augustus's reign, and that's Augustus and Agrippa on a, it's like, it's like a double throne. It's, it's uh, what's the name of it? It's Basilia or something like that. Basilium, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and, and here you've got this one on the right, uh, which is from uh, like se- the seven, late 7th century, um, or late 8th century, rather, uh, A.D., and that's Constantine um, the, the sixth, and his father, Leo the fourth, if uh, I read it right. And, or if they translated it right on Google. But anyway, so, so it's listed in German. What do I know about German? And, and so, um, so there, there are those two, two, two pictures. But that tells you that in the first century, late first century, if it was common then and common then, it was a common picture that people would have had in between 
those times, right? This double throne, it was a part of the world that they lived in. And Christ is saying that we will sit with him on his throne. Just as he sits with his father on his throne. That's just a glorious promise. Now, this promise to reign with Christ is found throughout Revelation. We saw it in the message to Thyatira, to the one who overcomes. Christ will give authority to rule the nations. Or in 5.10, Christ makes people a kingdom and priests that will reign on the earth. Or in chapter 20, verse 4, John saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And these are those who had overcome. And in 22, verse 5, the servants of the Lamb will reign with Him in the new Jerusalem forever and ever. This is our hope, to reign with Him in the new Jerusalem. Not Babylon. Now, we're we're often wanting to reign in Babylon. Our hope is to reign with Him in the new Jerusalem, the age to come, which begins even now in a foretaste in the church when we will uh, uh, rise up and be the church. That's, That's what we've got to do to begin that reigning now, is to start acting out as the church to to have the deeds that are not useless, but useful. But then there's, after this promise to reign with him, there's also, note, an important parallel. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, our victory is wrapped up in Christ's victory. Now, this does not mean that we need not overcome because he has. Rather, it means we can overcome because he has, and we will do so in him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Just a, a few thoughts in closing. The Laodiceans have a hope strong enough to overcome, but they must act on it. Elsewhere, John tells us this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith in Christ, as the ruler of God's creation, that kind of faith acts in line with our longing for His kingdom to come because such actions bring the kingdom to bear in the lives of those around us. And in so doing, we overcome the world. In so doing, our deeds become useful rather than useless. To borrow from what Sasha concluded, watching how people around her lived and what she was creating in her art of acting, she said, quote, Acting is freedom. It's searching for what's real. Every performance is different. Together with the other actors on stage and with the audience, I search for the truth. We all do. And sometimes we almost find it. That's the essence of acting, looking for the truth. There's nothing fake about it. There's no pretending. Listen, that's not far description from what it means to live by faith. To live by faith and allegiance to Christ is to act in line with His kingdom ways in a world that does not yet recognize them as true. To act as if evil cannot win in a world in which it sure seems to. To act as if money is not the answer to everything in a world in which it seems to be the answer to everything. To act as if when all is well we may be blind, unable to see problems, and need Christ so that we might see. To live by faith requires a certain amount of acting. It isn't false. It isn't pretending. It's acting in line with the truth and a seeking for the truth. A faith that does not act according to these realities is dead and useless, according to the Lord's brother James and according to Jesus right here in our text. What might Christ be calling you to exchange in order to gain something from Him that you desperately need? 
What might Christ be calling us to exchange in order to gain something from Him that we desperately need? Lord Jesus, please show us, we pray. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to see what what it is we need to exchange in order to gain from Christ what we desperately need. Each of us and all of us together, we pray that you would do that. Indeed, you do stand at the door and knock. May we take down our no soliciting signs. May we open the door. And may we seek what you offer. In Jesus' name. Amen.